you have your Bibles, please open to Acts chapter 2 as we continue our study in Acts. We're going through it thematic. We're not just going to go chapter by chapter. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. When you get there, say amen. Amen. When I get there, I'll say amen. 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 (laughs) I'm having trouble with this thing. Okay. I'll have to talk to our IT person. He's probably up in the window looking at me right now. Starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea... And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the Lord, before the day the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan of the full knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosening the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about this patriarch David, that he has both died and was buried, and that his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive a gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children, for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Father, we thank you for your word. God, give us clarity. Give us understanding. Let us step into that marvelous day of Pentecost. When Peter preached his first sermon, so that we can see and we can experience the deep convictions of this young church and this young preacher, Father God. That which birthed the Christian church, that which moved the Christian church, that which moved sinners' hearts to repentance, Father God, as they reflected on their own lives and brought them close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text tonight brings us to the very floodgates of the birth of the Christian church. We find ourselves listening to one of the greatest speeches, greatest speeches ever given. But unfortunately, few realize just how enormous and how great this speech is. This, it's really a sermon that this sermon really is. We can forget about it. We can read this. We can go through the book of Acts and we can say, oh, I read the book of Acts 5, 10, 15 times and never realize just how, what, uh, how important this one sermon is. And how God has used it, and God is still using it, and what it means to us today. Uh, it, it's, it's incredible. It's like, but it unfortunately, it falls the way of many great speeches and many great sermons. I can sit here and tell you that four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that why? We know that. But do we really have embraced it? I have. I want you to know something. When I was down in Washington, D.C., and, and I read this for the first time, I knew it growing up in history books, but when I was there and I saw it, I mean, it touched me mightily. It really, really changed my perspective uh, on our nation and, and so many other things. And, uh, but that's what a great speech does. Usually great speeches are birth in what? Adversity. That's the word. In tough times, in challenging times. That's what moves the hearts of men. God raises up people to move the hearts of men. Luther had one. Martin Luther King, that is. And he had what? A dream. He had a dream. And it moved people in the right direction. And it's still moving people in the right direction. And that's how much we need that. It, it inspires. And that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to lift up hope. And elevate dead spirits and put people in the right direction. Winston Churchill, if you never heard, we shall fight on the beaches. After Dunkirk, and it looked like England was just about, has just suffered a great loss. And that the enemy was closing in and he got up and he turned the whole thing around. And he inspired men and women to move to action. And he was a young man at the time, he just became Prime Minister of England at the time. But that's what happened. It was the times that created these speeches. And what we have here today is the same thing in Peter's speech. The people he's preaching to are so filled with religion, 
It is the Feast of Pentecost. They're all up at the temple, but God is in the upper room. The Holy Spirit is not sounding the trumpet in the temple, but the Holy Spirit is still in the hearts of 120 uh, disciples of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, who the world has crucified. They have no idea that the ends of the days of the Lord have come. The last days have come. God and his economy of redemption has moved out of law keeping. He has moved into the dispensation of grace. And the second coming of Christ could be at what? And they don't what? They don't know. You know, sometimes we forget that we're living in the last days. And I, and I want to be careful as a church. And, and, and I correctly or I should say mildly, try to put my arm around people and correct them. When we, we like to flatter ourselves by saying we're living in what? Who in this room has suffered for Christ? Who? I've been persecuted, I've been yelled at. Get away from me, you nut. <laughs> but but, I, but I'm, not, I'm not threatened, my family's not threatened, I'm not watching my children murdered. We have no idea. If anybody should be talking about the last days, it's not us. It's people who are truly suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. We have it easy with our frappuccinos and, oh, it's the last days they're taking away our religious freedom. But they're going to be taking us away one day. Not just our freedoms. We need to be inspired. We need to live with this truth that we're living in the last days. We need to be reminded. Every Christian sermon, every time we go into pulpit ministry, every time it should bring us to face the facts that we're living in a very dangerous time. And Peter's going to talk about this later on in the sermon when I get to it. But we need to be inspired every day to live in this world. Isn't that true? I need to be reminded because I can actually think... My little kingdom is the most important thing. I can my little life, you know, my this, my that. Has anybody ever had that kind of life? My this, my that. That's your kingdom. What is it you're lifting up to God? My what, my this. That's our kingdom. We've got to remember, notice, the last days, this is about God's kingdom, God's spirit, God's son, God's message, and those he is calling from far off and near into the kingdom of God, and that we are part of it. Yes, we have my this and my that, that's okay, but it has to, be, it has to come under the submission of the great will of God in the kingdom of God. For thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's what we have going on in this sermon, this preaching, this speech. It's inspired by Peter with the reality that the prophet Joel has spoken that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit. This man is addressing his audience with the deepest, deepest emotional appeal. He is looking at his audience and he's telling them, he's telling a group of Jews that understand there is a last days, that it has come upon us. Wake up. Wake up. Listen. Before I go into the text, there's a couple of technicalities we have to understand before we move on because there's something that separates us from them besides 2,000 years. I spoke about this last week. 
Historically, they were all faithful Jews living under the old covenant. They were waiting for the promises of God. They were waiting for a Messiah. He had come, he's missed it, but the Holy Spirit came up to remind them that the one you crucified, he's the one you're waiting for. See, God always gives give a second chance like that. Even though you crucified him, guess what? God didn't give up on you. He's going to send his Holy Spirit. And you, you didn't listen to the first witness, the Son. You'll listen to us. And 3,000 were saved on that day. But the technicality is, is that they were all Jews living under the covenant. They were wait, waiting for certain uh, promises to come, for the Messiah to come physically. And that the last days promised by God was going to be this grand experience by the nation. When God would subdue all Israel's earthly forces and set it up as a religious and political nation that was going to govern the whole world. That's what the Old Testament prophets preached. But the Old Testament prophecies dealing with this time were scattered. It was peppered in the Old Testament. There was no real clear and systematic understanding of end time events. So the Jew was waiting for the Messiah to come. They were waiting for the last days to come. The great and magnificent day of the Lord. They were waiting. They thought it was only one event though. Don't miss this. The Jew thought one event. Jesus or the Messiah would come. And right then and there set up an earthly. But that's they missed it. They didn't realize it's like me and you looking at. Uh, a mountain peak from a, a, a great distance. It could look like what? One peak. But the closer you get to it, it actually becomes what? Sometimes two or three or several. It's a, it's a mountain range, but from a distance, the mountain range could look real tight. It could look like just one. And that's how prophecy was in the Old Testament. They saw it from such a distance, it was such only a type and a shadow, that it looked like just one event, but actually it's really... Two events, you could break it down into three events. There's the coming of Messiah, his crucifixion, there's the giving of the Holy Spirit, and then there's the second coming of Christ. That formulated the last day understanding to the Jew. And now Peter is going to correct him. He's going to school him. He's going to teach him what it means. But with the coming of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit comes a definitive clarity. The mystery's gone. There's only one thing we don't know. When it comes to the second coming of Christ, please tell me you know what that mystery is. Someone tell me. We don't know when. We have no idea. It could be tomorrow. It could be a thousand years from now. God made sure that all our curiosities were not going to be satisfied. Our sinful curiosities are saying he's coming now. We're putting all the political climate together. Surely it's now. We have no idea. We have no idea. We will never have any idea. Our job is to be witnesses of Christ. I have great concerns with people that try to stir up and sensationalize uh, the times we live in, the political climate, and try to get Christians to like, I, I don't know what they're trying to do. Because let me explain something to you. I hope, this is how you can tell if you're ready to meet Christ. Are you ready? You sure you want to know? Okay, I'm speaking to Christians. If he was to come tomorrow and you knew it, would you change anything? If you're ready, you shouldn't have to change a thing. Because you're being led by the Spirit. If all of a sudden you're going to say, oh, I'll do this eight, 
You should be doing that anyway. We should be doing that anyway. So it's not about getting ready because Christ is coming back because we see all these changes going on. It should not change, eh? Because if the cross doesn't motivate me, if the first coming doesn't live in my heart, then the second coming won't do a thing. That's only fear. That's all it is. So let's be motivated by the first coming. Let's really understand what we do know. We do know the text. We do know the days we live in. We do know Christ is coming back soon. We know we're living in the last days. The Spirit of God has been poured out. Men and women, young men and children are prophesying. I'll get into all that. But understand something. We are living in the last days. And as Christians, we need to understand that from a biblical perspective. We need to know how God is building his kingdom through his spirit as his people bear witness to his son. His spirit, his people bearing witness to his, his spirit, his people bearing witness to his, that's how it works. His people filled with his spirit bearing witness to his son. That's the building of the kingdom of God. Let's go to our text. Verse 14, 15. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Peter is responding to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and 120 people coming out of the room speaking in strange tongues uh, about the mighty works of God. They're prophesying. We spoke about this last week. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the people around Jerusalem, some were curious and others called them what? Drunkards. They were mocking. This is not a genuine work of God. They're just plain drunk. And now Peter's going to respond to that. The first sermon is actually a response. And he goes like this. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour. And he goes on, but this is what it is. And that's what a Christian has to know. This is what Christianity is. This is what Christ is. Peter responds to their negative and ignorant comments with respect for them. It's important for us to understand that. First son, with respect. And with a new authority towards them. This disciple is not the same anymore. This is not the same man that cowered and denied Christ. He is now facing the very people that crucified Christ. He's a new man. He's got a new message. He's got a new authority. And in solidarity of heart with the other 11 apostles, he begins to bring an understanding to what was happening. It's not new wine, but the fulfillment of an old promise is what's going on here. According to prophet Joel, not as a promise to come anymore, but as what a promise fulfilled. He walks then through God's plan of redemption, always respectful to them, even though they crucified them but yet firm in his deep convictions and authority. And he adds this, and he quotes the prophet, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, 
And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens and above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen, for sure, Peter is quoting Joel here as the fulfillment of what everybody's seen and experienced. God's pouring out of his spirit that he promised would happen in the last days. It's not an arbitrary event where God's scratching his head. And when should I tickle the fancy of my people and give them the spirit? No, they'll get the spirit when things have changed and they're in the last days. I will pour out my spirit for a purpose. Peter is more concerned with the outward realities here. He's concerned. He's addressing the issue of why they're speaking in foreign languages. They're Galileans. They're uneducated people. And 120 of them are speaking in 19 different dialects. And everybody's hearing the mighty works of God by these Galileans that can barely speak their own language. They've got a problem of speaking. But yet these Galileans that are uneducated and unlearned people with a ghetto tongue understand something they're proclaiming the mighty works of God and people are astounded and Peter is getting up now and he's going to explain to them what is going on here namely that both men and women now even children were in that upper room were now prophesying that means they were proclaiming mightily and convincingly please understand this New Testament prophesying is not foretelling a future event about if the Mets are going to win. I, I would like to know that. As I stood there freezing last night watching it at the game, I would like, I would like to know that. But that's not what it means. They're, they're proclaiming who God is and what God has done and what God is doing in a mighty and convincing way. He, they're proclaiming the will of God to the people. Women. Men, Galileans, children, they're all prophesying. They're all proclaiming and declaring. It's not just the Old Testament prophet, the king or the priest. They're all operating and it's a sign that the Holy Spirit has come. It's a sign that we're in the last days. The other cosmic phenomenon that's really not addressed by Peter here uh, about the moon turning dark and the sun turning dark and all this kind of stuff. We have just a glimpse of it in Luke uh, 23, 44. Uh, I didn't tell Jackie about this, but let me read it. It was now in the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, the curtain of the temple was torn. We know that there was some kind of cosmic phenomena going on, but that's not what Peter is addressing here. Peter is specifically addressing the speaking of tongues and prophesying by men and women and children. That is what he's addressing. That's the most important thing. And the reason he is doing it, because anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord now will be... That's why. I don't want to sit here and discuss about the weather, about cosmic events... 
I'm more concerned about people hearing the message of it's the last days and that Jesus came and God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the right hand of the Father and by his blood you can be saved. That's what we're concerned about. That's what prophesying is. That's what we want to convince people of. That's what we spend our energy. That's what we spend our time. That's how we express our love. We prophesy what God has done in Jesus Christ. This is the main concern of Peter, that the end of the age has come and God has poured out his spirit. And one of the ways a Jew who's sitting under the Old Testament waiting for Messiah, a Jew sitting under the Old Testament waiting for the redemption of Israel, a Jew sitting under the Old Testament waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come, a Jew waiting for that would have to have a calling card from God. If they 120 people came out of the upper room and all of a sudden Jesus is coming to raise them from the dead, there wouldn't be much of a sign. But they come down prophesying, supernaturally speaking in foreign languages for the sole purpose of saying look go to Joel God prophesied that this time would come that you can trust in the message he met their need that's what it was meant to be not their curiosity there's people that are curiosity seekers they, they like to see things they like to talk about supernatural phenomena but the whole thing in the New Testament the book of Acts as we go through it was all to attest to the message the message that all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what it was all about. Not that we can get together and say, I heard something. I saw something. It is solely about this. That those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the sign of this powerful proclamation of God's mighty acts culminating in Christ has risen from the dead. Men and women, they were going through a biblical redemptive story. They were starting off, and and, and David slew Goliath, but, but Christ, he slew Satan. Christ slew death. Yes, Christ even took your sin. That's the message. David and Goliath, and it's like, it's, it's, you know, Christ has risen. That's the message now. Christ has risen just like he said. So that everyone who calls upon who? The name of who? Something's just changed. That's that's a, a, a name for God. What they're saying now is Jesus Christ, the criminal from Nazareth that you crucified, he's He's Jehovah. They're attributing to Jesus that he is Jehovah. The message is clear. Jesus Christ is God. You know what's best? That all the great minds in the world today and back then, they missed it. But there are children prophesying. God using children to prophesy the greatest message ever. Jesus is alive. Jesus is God. All the great minds of the world are missing it. And God is pouring out his spirit on his maidservants and his female servants. 
And even young men and women shall prophesy, have dreams and have visions. This is the way God operates. God's not just picking up the mighty. God picks up the lowly, the nobodies of the world, to change the world. This is a hallmark characteristic of God's work among us. And we shouldn't miss it. We should recognize when God's working on people's hearts. We should genuinely recognize when God is doing a work in someone. And it has nothing to do with their education. It has nothing to do with their prominence in the world. It has nothing to do with their position in the world. It doesn't have nothing to do with what they know, who they think they know. It has nothing to do with that. God comes and says, you're mine, I'm going to use you. Period. He goes on to say, men of Israel... Hear these words. Again, it's an emotional appeal. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Peter, again, with respect to his audience, points them to the historical Jesus. There's no denying that Jesus of Nazareth walked this earth. There's no denying of what he did. And he points him to that first. He retraces what extraordinary things God did through this seemingly ordinary Nazarene. This carpenter's son. He appeals to the facts. As you yourself know. And now speaks without apology. In a matter of fact tone. About God's providence and man's responsibility. He holds no back over here. He makes a startling claim. You did it. You did it. Now, remember who he's talking to. It's the Feast of, the feast of Pentecost. It's 50 days later. Most of these people are coming from other nations. They weren't even... They weren't even there. They weren't there. Most of the people, they're not, they never seen that, but he's saying, you crucified them. You did it. This is startling. They were in their hometowns, far from the actual crime, but it's their responsibility for it. And not just that, even though they didn't take the hammer and nail it into his hands, they're held accountable for it. You killed them by the hands of lawless men. This is preaching. This all speaks to something. It speaks to the national rejection by their religious representatives. And this is how it works in spiritual terms. There's a lesson here. If religious leaders are making spiritual decisions and their followers are saying amen or their followers are choosing to say nothing at all, they're also just as guilty as they themselves. The nation rejected their Messiah. And the regular people followed the religious leaders. And Jesus says the blind will what? Lead the blind and what? They both fall into the pit. They're as guilty as the Romans that killed them. But he goes on. God raised them up. That's the good news. For your sake, it's the good news. You killed them, but God raised them up, loosening the pains of death because it's not possible to be held. He's the author of life. You can't kill him. Man's evil does not have the last word over God's will. 
Man's evil doesn't have the last word over God's kingdom. Man's will doesn't have the last word over your life. It doesn't have the last word over my life. It doesn't have the last word over, over Jesus' life. Man's evil intent, even man's murderous ways, don't have the last word. God does. There's nothing more powerful than death. It's it. It's, it's final. Everybody can sleep safe now because Jesus has been dead. Little did they know God has the last word. And God raised them up, Peter says. The resurrection is clearly in view here. Peter now quotes another Old Testament text as proof. This sermon is not just built on personal testimony. Please understand something. Good, solid, biblical sermons that change lives aren't built up on just personal testimonies. It's built on biblical truth. And all personal testimony is built on biblical truth. You don't want to come up here and just hear about me all day. I'm a a mess. What holds me together is biblical truth. That's what we want. Truth. And that's what Peter is doing here. And he quotes Psalm 6, 8 to 11. He says, but David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand. That I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You make me full of gladness with your presence, David says. He goes on to say, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, Peter says, about the patriarch David. That he he has both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the thrones, he foresaw or spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, but did his flesh see corruption. Peter not just quotes David. Peter just not quotes Psalm 16, but he gives it its proper interpretation. Please understand this. Psalm 16 is still a mystery to the Jew. Psalm 16 is still a mystery to the world. But it's not to you and me. It's a fulfillment of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Peter gives this interpretation from a Christ has risen perspective. All Christian teaching on the Old Testament and all Christian teaching on the promises to Israel and the Old Testament have to go through the process of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You cannot take an Old Testament text and preach on it without not giving our points to Jesus Christ. We are not Jews under the law. We are Christians under grace. And so everything in the Old Testament has to point to Jesus Christ and grace. The whole thing. Peter is educating his hearers. This cannot be speaking about David. Of course, they thought it was David. They had to speak to somebody greater than David. Of course, it's the son of David. And who's the son of David? Jesus is. Jesus is the great David. Much of the Old Testament was a mystery to the Jewish people. And indeed, it still is to like many people. But the only way you can properly understand the Old Testament, the key to interpretation is the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Otherwise, the Old Testament on its own is a mystery. Period. He appeals to them. Men of Israel, hear these words. He's saying, don't miss it. This Jesus whom you crucified... He goes on to say, God raised him up from the dead. 
And we're all witnesses, me and the 11 and 120. We're witnesses that Jesus is alive. You killed him at the hands of lawless men. It should be over. And you're guilty that you killed him. But God raised him up again, and he's coming to you again and offering you salvation. For whoever calls upon the man you crucified, even if you crucified, you shall be saved. We don't understand that. We're not in Jerusalem. We're not guilty of that, in a sense. They were. He goes on to say, therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God... And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out to you what you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. It's logical David couldn't do it. David doesn't have the power to send the Holy Spirit. But he himself says, the Lord, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter now marries together the crucifixion of Jesus and God raising him from the dead. Please don't miss it. Only to sit him in his proper place as dispenser of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit coming shows us that we're in the last days. The Holy Spirit coming shows us that God raised him from the dead. That Christ ascended into heaven. And now Christ is both Lord and Messiah of the whole universe. And now Jesus in his divine authority dispenses the Holy Spirit. Well, Pastor, I know that. But we got to enter into 2,000 years ago because they did not know that. And this is proof to the Jew that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He again quotes Scripture from Psalm 110. And we can see the trajectory going on in this, in this sermon. It's from a historical circumstance to the explanation, an explanation of the earthly Jesus, an explanation of the crucifixion, an explanation of the resurrection, an explanation of his ascension into heaven, uh, and the divine end of everything. The whole goal of everything is that God will subdue every, every enemy where? Underneath his? That's a picture of the Messiah. What does that mean? All God's enemies? Did you ever hear anybody say this? If God is so powerful, If God is so wise, if God is so loving, how come there is A, B, C, D, E, F, G? Anybody ever hear that one? Why should I believe if God is so loving? Why should I believe in God is so powerful? Understand something. Jesus is God's answer to every evil in the universe. But he does it his way on his timetable, not ours. See, we just want God to come and clean up our life. Clean up the whole world so I can live a nice, comfortable, sinful life without you, God, for a thousand years. Come and take care of all the bad people. Just don't come into my mind and clean it up of its filth. Don't come into my heart and clean it up of its lust. Don't come into my heart and clean it up of its anger. Don't come into my heart and deal with my greed. Don't come into my heart and deal of, of, my, uh, of my criticism and, and justifying and hating people. Don't come into my life. Just get rid of all the bad people and leave me alone doesn't work that way God's going to subdue all his enemies and that's your heart and that's my heart and that's what God's doing 
Jesus is conquering all God's foes, sin, Satan, death, and the human heart. And that's our sanctification. So every day that goes on, we get closer to the Lord. And every day that goes, God, God is dealing with the sin in our own heart and encouraging us and forgiving us and, and moving us forward to be more like his son in a loving way. Understand something, that's the kingdom of God. Jesus is more concerned about conquering what goes on in our heart right now. He, he'll deal with Satan. He'll take care of all the bad people. Right now he's dealing with us. He goes on to say this and we'll be closing. Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ whom you have crucified. Now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now Peter, after laying a clear understanding of all these things, God's work to his Son, the sending of his Spirit, the ascension of Christ, he takes this clear understanding of who Christ is and what God's doing by his Spirit, And he aims it right at the hearts of the people. This is a deep emotional appeal. It's meant to hurt. It's meant. This Jesus who you crucified, it's meant to hurt. Not mean-spirited. It's meant to convict of their sin and their need of salvation. You can see Peter, the fiery preacher, looking at the crowd and telling them, you crucified Christ. I can sit here and talk to us today and say, our sins crucified Christ. And with the same emotional appeal, I can do that. And John does that. And we try to do that every Sunday. So God does a deeper work in our hearts, in our need for salvation, our need for a continued grace in our life. And guess what? By God's grace alone, they listened. And they cried out with sincere hearts, what must we do? That's every pastor's heart. To hear people say, what must we do? What must I do? How can I be saved? How should I live for the Lord? How can I please the Lord? Brian, tell me how to please the Lord. The only one thing I want in this life is to go to bed every night knowing I'm pleasing to the Lord. And Peter gives a great and clear answer. It's not watered down. Repent and be baptized. No simple prayer. To repent was to turn away from sin and to be baptized was to be associated with the very man you crucified. It's telling the world, I'm not a Jew. I'm a Christian. It's telling the world, I'm not a drunkard anymore. I'm a Christian. It's telling the world, I'm not a whoremonger anymore. I'm a Christian. It's telling the world, I've repented of my sins. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I'm not turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. That's what it is. This is no watered down version of say a prayer and do the best you can. This is pick up your cross and follow me. And he goes on, and this is it. 
for the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation, so that those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter continues to preach about God's work, about drawing people who are close, about drawing people to himself who are far away, that's the Gentiles. He exhorts them about Christ, he exhorts them about Holy Spirit, and most of all, and don't miss this, he exhorted them and admonished them to be careful of this crooked generation they live in. Be careful, is what he's saying, of the culture around you. Be careful to think you're part of a culture, Peter's saying, that crucified the Lord of glory and they don't think anything about it. We live in a culture that could care less about Jesus and they don't think anything about it. There are people that live in this world that they call themselves Christians, but they live like sinners and they don't think what? Anything about it. Anything at all. This is great. I'm going to heaven. I can do whatever I want. That's the world we live in. That's the culture we live in. This is what's going on in America. And uh, Peter was careful to exhort them to escape from this crooked culture. And that's what we do in Christian ministry. We exhort people to be saved and come to Christ. We exhort people about how to live for Christ, to live in the promises of God, that God is not through with them, and to exhort them to be careful of this crooked generation. Every Christian from Peter's sermon to this sermon today and every sermon in the future has to be careful not to get caught up into the crooked generation. It's misleading and it's lying to God's people. Let's close. The sermon, like I said, is the birth of the church. We will see as we go through the book of Acts that this sermon continues to feed the church. We will see in the book of Acts that these truths continue to be the, the instrument by how God grows the church. And we'll see this sermon and its truths that it's the foundation of the Christian life. Everything sent is seed form is the foundation of the Christian life. So that we can say with David... You have made me known the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for taking us into what took place 2,000 years ago, God, that we are in the last days, and it brings a, a, a greater life to this speech, to this sermon, Father God, that we need Christ so desperately today as we ever did before, God. Teach us and help us to escape from this crooked Generation with its perverse things, Father God. I pray, Father God, if there's anyone listening to my voice today that with their eyes closed, they can ask Jesus, even right now, to say, Jesus, come into my life and forgive me and to help me. I see clearly now that God rose you from the dead from my sins. And I repent of my sins. And I give my life to you. God, come and bless us, we ask in Jesus' precious name.